Hello and welcome to the Berkeley Remix, a seasonal podcast series from the Oral History Center of the Bancroft Library at the University of California, Berkeley. Founded in 1954, the center records and preserves the history of California, the nation, and our interconnected world. In this podcast series, we draw on thousands of interviews to bring those stories to life. Please join us for the third season of the Berkeley Remix, entitled First Response, AIDS and Community in San Francisco. Epidemics are not just the spread of infectious disease. They are also the spread of fear. Like a virus, fear of the disease spread from person to person and multiplied into different strains. The fear of groups of people who are different from you. The fear of behaviors, lifestyles, values. The fear that civilization itself is threatened or in decline. For its part, the gay community feared a medical justification of a stigma which threatened to be one more in a long history of medical stigmatization of the gay community. For many, many years, homosexuality itself was considered a kind of communicable disease that was catching and corrupting. And now this disease, the gay cancer as it was then known in the press, promised to open up a new pathway for fear and hate. In this episode, we will explore how people responded to these different sets of fears. As we will see, Some people with the best of intentions ended up caught between groups suffering from different forms of fear. Today we know that AIDS is caused by the Human Immunodeficiency Virus, or HIV, which infects the body through the transmission of bodily fluids, through sexual contact or sharing needles from intravenous drug use, for example. The virus does not kill right away, but it attacks and eventually wears down the body's immune system. In 1981, however, nobody knew any of that. In 1981, young, fit men were visiting their doctors or the general hospital with strange, painful growths on their faces, fungal infections in their throats, or advanced pneumonia. Weeks or even days later, they were dead. Dead from rare diseases that had, until then, only affected those much older or weaker. In this episode, we will introduce a number of places where the medical community would encounter and begin to work with those who were suffering from full-blown AIDS. The first was a special wing of the San Francisco General Hospital that was designated for patients who were dying of AIDS, known as Ward 5B. The second was the Kaposi Sarcoma Clinic of UC San Francisco. The development of Ward 5B is the subject of the final podcast, episode 6, but here we simply want to focus on the first encounters with AIDS. There was a great deal of fear among the researchers who worked with patients and with diseased tissues. Even seasoned virus hunters like Dr. Donald Francis, who had worked on Ebola outbreaks in Africa in the 1970s, was conscious of the danger and the effect that unknown disease had on researchers. Were you scared? Sure. But that was part of the job. And I think probably some of the pathology that those of us in the field have is that we you get a thrill from that. You don't want to get infected, but you want to be in a you know a, I'm a downhill skier and you know that kind of extra little risk taking. Here in public health, we always talk about risk reduction, but you don't want to be the one who gets infected. You don't want anyone in your response. You're allowed to be infected. But you know that on the other side of your gloves is something very dangerous. The fear could be amplified if you were a gay man who was also a researcher working with disease material. Here is Dr. Donald Abrams of the Kaposi Sarcoma Clinic. 
I remember one day I woke up in the morning and I had these four spots on my right hand, purple spots. And I said, yikes, what is this? And I just kept looking at them and they weren't going away. And I said, jeez, you know, and I said, this is very strange. So I went and I called Marcus Conan that that morning, Sunday morning, immediately. I said, Marcus, there's something going on here. You know, I, you know, I am a gay man, so I had a, you know, I, we didn't know what this was, and I needed to just reality test to make sure yeah. that there was that I didn't catch this. <laughs> yeah. So I went over, and Marcus put my hand down on a velvet thing and took a picture of it, which got me very nervous, and said, "Well, if it doesn't go away in the next four or five days, you know, come back and we'll have to do a biopsy." I had gone to a Christmas party, and I said, "Well, look at I woke up with this on it." Everybody at this Christmas party, you know, said, how you doing? I said, well, I'm okay except for this. And I'm showing everybody my my four spots. And it was Marcus did not reassure me by taking a picture of it. Yes. You know. <laughs> and then it was actually my partner at the time who said, well, think about it. Did you spill something on your hand? And then it dawned on me that when I carry the liquid nitrogen bucket, I don't have a top on it. And if the liquid nitrogen splashes, you get a, a little burn with a blister. And I had on Friday gone to Kaiser and collected a lymph node and I was carrying it like this and so the liquid nitrogen came and gave me these four spots on my hand that, yeah. that burnt me and <laughs> what a relief. it was yeah it was it was yeah. pretty frightening though it was yeah. really uh, you know because we didn't know what this disease was mm-hmm. then and here I am not only seeing these patients with it but I'm also you know grinding up and inhaling their DNA in the laboratory so so that was sort of a, a trip here is Sally Hughes talking to Angie Lewis, a nurse educator who worked on the first AIDS wards at San Francisco General. Well, what, what did it mean to be diagnosed with chaos at that stage? It meant that you were going to die. It meant that you had a disease that no one understood didn't couldn't tell you how you got it, how you passed it, or if you could hurt anybody. It meant that you would be exposed as a gay person, a gay man particularly. Um, it meant that one better start getting their affairs in order. So that meant dealing with family if it hadn't been dealt with before. And death was very much a part of it from the get-go. Really? Yeah. What about fear on both sides? Oh, yeah, yeah. absolutely. And and not because you didn't know. There was so much gray. Mm-hmm. When I used to give classes, I would talk about um, dealing with grays. We want absolutes. We want black and white. We want to know. And we don't know. Mm-hmm. And not knowing is so hard. And it's, it is very scary. And, and we all feel very vulnerable. I remember very clearly, we were living in uh, Woodacre out in the country and, and um, first few months of this whole thing. I was already going to see patients on a regular basis. And I woke up one night um, in the middle of the night drenched in sweat and um, very sick 
you know, I had the flu or something. I don't know. I was convinced, absolutely, totally convinced. This was it. Whatever it is, I've got it. I don't know how you get it. Whatever it is, I've found the way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And was over, and you know, I I was better in 24 hours or something. But it was very mm -hmm. frightening to think it's happened. You know, I'll be the first case. Mm -hmm. so within probably the first five or six months. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing that that particular experience did for us was that I had been at that point in time trying to inseminate to get pregnant. With that experience, we had a conversation and Shirley said, look, you know, you can do one or the other. You can't do both. You can either try to get pregnant, in which case I want you to stop this aid stuff, because we don't know. You could pass that to a baby. Mm -hmm. We don't know what it means. Or you can do that, but you can't do both. And so I elected to stop inseminating and to keep working uh, in the epidemic. Fear became built into the education work Angie Lewis was doing. Particularly in the very early days, we really didn't know transmission. We didn't know how to prevent it. We didn't know anything. And that was scarier because of it? Because yes, of not unknowing. Yeah. Not knowing. Shades of gray, yeah. as I used to talk about, are very frightening. Mm -hmm. More so than, all right, we have a virus. Yes, oh. yes. Much more so. Once you know what it is, you can feel like you can control it and you can take some steps. So there was the fear of not knowing. Not knowing what the disease was, how it was transmitted, whether or not you had caught the disease after countless hours of working with patients or with tissues. But what about the fear of knowing you had contracted an incurable disease and that you were going to die? Dr. Marcus Conant saw this fear in the patients at his and Paul Volberding's Kaposi Sarcoma Clinic, the first clinic to treat patients with the disease in a systematic fashion. But the trauma of the disease was not just physical. Early on, they hired a psychologist to help patients to process the news. They had to contend both with societal blame and their own complex feelings about who they were and what was happening to them. The press was full of the gay cancer, and it was a uniformly fatal disease, and it was the uh, wrath of God being visited on these men, and yes, they were being punished for this behavior, which society said was wrong. And remember, too, this is often forgotten, gay men have the same mothers as straight men. And so the straight men who believe that homosexuality is wrong were taught that by the same mother who taught her gay son. And what did she teach him? She didn't teach him that it was right. She taught him it was wrong. Emotionally, they want to do one thing, and intellectually, they believe they should do something else. Now, that becomes very difficult. So what a lot of people do is they just say, screw it, I'm going to move to San Francisco. Suddenly, this man now has AIDS, and he's now dying. And society is saying, it's your fault. And all of that garbage that he's carried now for years from his late teens comes roaring up about, oh my God, am I really this evil, wicked person? What have I done? 
was mother right after all? Yeah. You know, is society really right that I deserve this? And the reason we needed a psychologist in this clinic was we walked out of the room as doctors saying, yes, this is what it is. And this man needed hours of counseling, not just a few minutes, but really needed somebody who could take him and then really begin to work through not just a diagnosis of a potentially fatal disease, but all the stuff that he had there all of his life that needed to be processed. And all the other questions, how do you tell your mother? What are you going to do when your dad says you're a faggot and slams the door and never wants to speak to you again? And don't think that didn't happen. Researchers and healthcare providers recognized early on that managing fear needed to become part of the treatment, part of the organization of the institutions. When reports of an unknown disease affecting gay men first appeared in the press, medical institutions, apart from UCSF or San Francisco General, were unsure of how to treat these patients, and some were reluctant to admit them at all. Here's City Health Department Director Mervyn Silverman. Other hospitals were worried about having these patients because of what it would do to the other patients. I think there was a real fear of that. Many hospital staff did not want to go anywhere near patients with AIDS. They feared getting sick themselves, and not a few were disgusted by homosexuality and wanting nothing to do with them. The coordinators of the first AIDS clinics and wards realized they needed to address the fears and attitudes of healthcare professionals. Here is nurse educator Angie Lewis. At that point in time, we were dealing with sexuality. People had a very negative sense. I mean, all you have to do is hear Jesse Helms in the past week talk about this disgusting, horrible behavior. Well, there were many people, and still are, in the educational venue um, who felt like, well, they need to just stop. I mean, it's their own fault, and why don't they just stop? But we had a series of exercises over time that, that evolved, like helping people realize how difficult it is to change behavior. You know, we all know what helps keep you healthy. So how many of you this morning flossed your teeth? Yes. You know, how many of you only had, you know, X grams of fat in the past 24 right. hours? How many of you took a walk or did your exercise? You know, how many of you smoke? How many of you, you know, we tried to look at those kinds of yeah. changes yeah. that any of us find extraordinarily difficult to do. And taking sexuality and saying, now, someone says to you, but you can't ever have intercourse again. You know, how do you do, how can you, would you, and should you? And sort of trying to help people think about those issues rather than just saying, but they all they have to do is stop. So part of the care involved humanizing the relationships between caregivers and patients. And one of the things that one often did in a presentation was talk about fear and the fact that we've all felt fearful and that that, that is part of living is, yeah. is being fearful at times. And we need to use fear to keep ourselves safe. Yeah. I mean, you don't go messing around with needles and you don't yeah. go messing around with sharps and, and fluids and that kind of thing. 
There are times when it's reasonable to wear gloves, to wear gowns, mm -hmm. to take full precautions. Yeah. But that doesn't apply to going in and holding someone's hand. Mm -hmm. It doesn't apply to sitting on a bed. It applies when there are fluids. It applies when there are sharps. What a lot of people did was transfer their fear of themselves catching the disease to the person, and then that's a way of distancing that person. Fear itself was a virus that moved from person to person, that shut the doors of institutions that were devoted to healing the sick, that hardened the hearts of those whose political careers were devoted to a return to traditional values and fiscal responsibility, the consequences of which we'll explore in Episode 5. But what we see here are stories of individuals who struggle to master their fear and face their own mortality, or to risk their lives to help those in that struggle. What certainly helped is that the gay community had already built their own public health networks before the arrival of AIDS. Join us next time on First Response for that story. This podcast was produced, written, and narrated by Paul Burnett. Editing by Ali Sherodis and Paul Burnett. Production and promotion assistance by David Dunham and Shanna Farrell. Special thanks to the band Do Make Say Think whose music can be found at Constellation Records. Go to cstrecords.com or to your local record store to hear more. Berkeley Remix theme music by Paul Burnett. Thanks also to Scott Kalanico for his piece, When AIDS Was Funny, and to the archives of the Ronald Reagan Library, UC San Francisco, and San Francisco State University. All interview clips were taken from the Oral History Center collections, and the audio digitization was undertaken by David Dunham and the student employees Marissa Uribe, Carla Palacian, Amna Hawk, Holly O'Brien, and Cindy Jin. I'm Martin Meeker, director of the Oral History Center. Thank you for listening.